Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. This week on the show, I'm joined by Steve Bartilla to break down his best advice for hunting the second half of November and the late season. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light and their Camo for Conservation initiative. Hoping you're familiar with this, but if not, you should know that a portion of every sale of First Light Spectre Camo goes back to the National Deer Association to help with their mission to make things better for deer and deer hunters, which is pretty darn cool. And what else is pretty darn cool is the fact that today we have a terrific guest. We have one of my favorite guests that we've ever had on the show, and this is Steve Bartilla. He's someone who has been on over the years. He brings a wealth of knowledge to the table. He is a very, very experienced deer hunter, land manager, and consultant, and writer. He's appeared in the pages of many deer hunting magazines. I'm sure you've read his work. And he's a great communicator. He's fun to listen to, and he really knows what he's talking about. And today, the topic we're tackling is how to find success in the second half of the season, because that's kind of where we're at. I always look at November 15th as that middle point. That's like the halftime of the season. And as me and Steve discuss, there's sometimes a certain amount of pressure that comes with that. I kind of feel like once November 15th hits, man, it's, it's, it's different after that. And that's especially so here where I live in Michigan, because opening day of gun season is November 15th. But I think even if you're in a different state without that gun season, Things just feel different back half of November 
back half of the fall. And so what I wanted to have Steve help us discuss is what exactly does that mean? Is it all downhill from here? Are our best chances all in the rear view mirror? Should we be as stressed as maybe we are right now or not? Are there still some good things coming? I believe there are still some good things coming. And that's what we talk about. We break down a whole bunch of different, very specific ideas Steve has for hunting the two last weeks of November. So if you are listening to this right when it drops on November 16th, we're going to talk through specific things for the next week, some other ideas for the last week of November, and then a whole bunch about general late season hunting, what to do once December rolls around. How can we make the most of these final weeks and months of the season? It's a good one. Lots to share. Steve brings a lot to the table. And I guess the one other thing I would say is the mental side of things might be the hardest at this point in the year. Because if you're like me, you've been going at it pretty hard. Maybe your season started in September. And maybe you're hunting all through October, chasing that deer, or trying to get any deer. And, and maybe you've pushed into November and you grind, you were grinding through the first week or two. You had some all day sits, maybe a lot of all day sits. Maybe you've had some opportunities, but maybe not. And even in my case where I've, I've got a few deer on the ground, I still feel this, I don't know, this, this weight that comes with this time of the year, this, this telling me like, man. Whew, you're wore out, but at the same time, you got to keep trying. Like there's, there's still season ahead. There's still opportunity ahead. There's still the opportunity for redemption. Um, I've had, you know, a, a big missed opportunity as we talked about a week or two ago, and that has been weighing on me hard. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to move past that and I'm trying to get back to the fun of it and, and having a certain lightness to my hunting. I think that's something that anyone who's listened over the years knows that I have a tendency to get too serious about this and and trying to remember the fun side of things, trying to, rem- to, to embrace the joy of it all and release the stress. I think that is a particularly important thing for a lot of us to think about at this time of year because it's easy to get worried at this time of the year if you don't have a tag filled or if you had a miss or, or a wound or, or something go wrong, it's easy to feel when November 15th hits or the 16th or Thanksgiving, like, man, it's all done. I screwed it up or my chances are gone or now I'm going to have to wait till next year. And that's just not true. But it's, it's hard not to let that seep into the back of your mind. So my, my thoughts for you in a very long-winded way, as I tend to do, is try to keep that fun in it try to keep the faith, try to keep going and, and maybe take a few days off, maybe take a week off, whatever it is, do whatever you need to do to get your head right, to physically feel right again, spend some time with family, get those important things in a good place. And then once you're feeling back at it as a normal person, then you can step back into the woods feeling refreshed. And, and I think it's easier to enjoy it again. It's easier to you know, fully embrace everything, the good and the bad that happens in the woods. But if you're coming off of two weeks of hunting nonstop or a week rutcation or whatever it was that you were able to do this year, if you're coming off of all that, you are probably wore down. You are probably beaten down to a pulp. I know I am whooped right now. I am physically and mentally whooped and I needed a day. 
So today I took the day off and I took my kids to school and I'm going to pick them up from school and I'm going to spend some time with them. I'm taking a day here in the middle of November to reset, to regroup. And then I think once I get back after it here, I'm going to feel better about things. And as Steve and I discussed, there's good reason to feel better because deer are still doing ruddy things in the back half of November. Even if you've got a gun season going on, you can still find those pockets where deer feel safe and where they're still breeding, where they're still chasing, seeking, desperately trying to find a doe. All that good stuff that you were excited about on November 1st or November 7th, it's still possible if you know the right way to approach it. So without any further ado, I want to get to Steve Bartilla talking about second half of November deer hunting strategies and how to keep the good times rolling in December and beyond. Here we go. All right, here with me now on the line, a returning guest, a fan favorite. We've got Steve Bartilla. Steve, thank you so much for doing this. It, Mark, it is absolutely always my pleasure. These things are fun. And frankly, anytime, yeah. uh, anytime we can go ahead and try to, you know, help others get a little bit more out of our shared passion, triple bonus points. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, you've been on the show probably three or four times in the past, I think now. And I, and I know for sure that every single one of those, you have done that. You have helped a lot of people. So uh, so thank you in advance, because I know that's going to happen again today. Oh, hey. And I, since we're sitting there patting each other on backs like crazy, I, for what it's worth, I appreciate what you do out there, too. And we actually, one of the, I get it. You know, I get it. I made a career in this somehow, just like absolutely everybody else. But I'll tell you what. When a person can actually honestly try to help those who threw you on your sh- their shoulders and carry you to the dance, that's pretty special because neither of us are here without that. I know I'm preaching to the choir when I'm saying that to you as well. Yeah, very, very true. So with that being the case, then I guess, Steve, if, if we're trying to help folks today, which we are, uh, I want to help you and not take up too much of your time. Because I know this is November when we're talking, and all of us are crazy busy right now, chasing deer, chasing conditions, chasing the wind, whatever it is, uh, we're, we're busy. So I want to jump right into today's topic. And today's topic, Steve, is the second half of the season, second half of November and the second half of the year in general. Because when this podcast comes out, it will be November 16th, I believe. And when that day hits, I don't know how you feel, Steve, but when I see that calendar switch from the 15th to the 16th, it feels like something has changed. Like we've, we've passed the halfway mark of November. It kind of feels like we've passed the halfway point of the hunting season. And usually when I get there, I start feeling a different kind of pressure maybe. It, it feels like there's a lot behind us. And sometimes it kind of feels like the best is behind us, or at least a lot of folks feel that way. My first question for you, Steve, is... Is that how you feel? How do you feel about the second half of the season? Does it feel like the best is behind us, or are you still really excited about our chances moving forward? I'll be brutally honest with you. Each phase of season has, I see as its own little unique package. I always have. Um, early seasons approached a certain way. If you, 
if you're trash in your place, you're going to end up having that October lull, which is kind of a misnomer, but it has more to do with pressure than anything else. Leaves dropping, though, does tend to freak them out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> then you've got the scrape phase, then you've got the chase phase, then you've got breeding, and when I hear October, when I hear November 15th, 16th, I'm thinking, okay, we are right right at the very end of the breeding phase and man a whole bunch of these animals are going to be locked down to me november 15th means that we're pretty much right at the we're looking at it's going to vary on where you're hunting of course but we're in the upper Midwest where I hunt on November 15th. What I'm looking at is, okay, we're about at the end of lockdown. And that means that we actually have an exciting little period coming up here. And I I know everybody in the world out there talks about the rut. I mean, geez, during breeding, you got all these bucks running around. They're showing up from anywhere. I'm sorry. I don't experience that much. During the rut, is there any shifting around and all that type of stuff? Sure. But I don't have all these. It's very rare that on November 8th, I'm sitting on a tree stand on the grounds I manage for clients. Um, that I'm sitting in a tree stand and, oh, here comes a buck I've never seen before. No, that on small properties, on your 20-acre property, on your 40, heck, a 240. Stuff like that happens quite a bit. On the stupid big grounds, you see shifting within that ground. But I'll tell you what, these bucks, every, you can never say always and you can never say never when it comes to mature buck behavior. We are talking mere tendencies, but it is pretty dang unicornish rare for me to pick up a mature buck during the rut that I don't have pictures of, that I didn't know existed before. But, you get to this window right after this airs. And man, the game just changed. And I don't, I can't swear what I'm about to say is true, but based on my own anecdotal data and research, what I'm pretty sure ends up happening is that mature buck, he knows this area here. He knows every dang thing that's going on in this area, and he doesn't want to leave it. Until all of a sudden, there are no more pretty girls that are interested in him at all within that area. But he knows that there's still going to be those fawns, those doe fawns that are coming into estrus yet. There may end up being a late fawn. I'm sorry, I don't buy this whole, all these does skipped. No, a nubbin buck can successfully breed a doe. These, I don't care how whacked your sex ratios are. You don't have a whole bunch of these does not getting bred. What you do have, those, a few of them aren't going to take. And you've got all those doe fawns that once they reach certain physical and physiological thresholds, in other words, once they get this big, <laughs> now, now they come into estrus as well. You can't actually peg exactly when that's going to occur because it's based on the health of the doe. It's based on when that fawn was born. It was based on the the quality of habitat that doe had access to for the amount of milk she was able to produce for that fawn. Uh, Trivial side note, 
quality of forage has nothing to do with quality of milk. The quality of milk is going to be the exact same no matter what they're eating, but the quantity. The quantity is impacted tremendously by the quality of forage that doe's eating. So if that doe's eating just primo stuff all summer long, she's pumping that milk to that fawn. That fawn was born perfect time. Massive, overwhelming majority of those fawns are going to come into estrus, but we don't know exactly when. It's most likely going to happen sometime between November about 15th to early January. But those mature bucks understand that there's still breeding out opportunities out there to be had. There's none here, so that's when I tend to start picking up these roamers. And what I'll do, a very, very effective, very effective tactic for myself is go ahead and hunt those, those prime, fam, well-defined prime family group bedding areas in the mornings. Those ones that have a surplus of healthy does. Why? Because they tend to have a surplus of healthy fawns. Okay. Then the afternoons. Quite honestly, I just hunt food. Your mature buck, after he gets through the rut, on average is going to have dropped 25 to 30% body weight. And now, in the Midwest and points north, they're facing their most stressful period of the entire year. Their food, as far as food supply goes, this is their weak point. Okay. The overwhelming majority of these animals are actually running a negative energy balance over winter in the Midwest and points north, meaning they burn more calories and they're able to get out of their food. Okay. That makes prime food sources a heck of a draw come mid-November all the way on through the end of the season and winter as well, obviously. So when you really add all this stuff up together, when it comes to late season, you kind of have the perfect storm. You have the most limited food sources of the entire year for your Midwestern and Northern deer. Uh, side note for our Southern friends, that happens to be in the middle of summer droughts um, in the very dry, dry and arid regions. Uh, and Mr. Big has went ahead and dropped that 25 to 30% body weight, running that negative energy balance, and, oh, the temperature, the snows, all that stuff is further sapping energy from it. You add all that type of stuff up, and I'll tell you what, those food sources, the best food sources in the area, especially if they're somewhat near thermal cover that these deer are attracted to, although a, a primo food source will do it all by itself. Um, <clears throat> those are great places to hunt in the afternoons. They're not bad places to hunt in the mornings either. They're not bad at all. The problem, though, is everything is a balancing act in this stuff. You go in in the mornings, do you have a chance to kill that buck you're after? Sure you do. But what are deer doing during the middle of the nights? More often than not, they're either feeding on their primary food sources or they're bedded around their primary food sources, regurgitating their cud. So... If you can get in, if you can get in and hunt that food source in the morning, hey, as long as you can get in 
hunt it, get out without those deer seeing, smelling, or hearing you. Perceptions every bit as reality for whitetail as it is for humans. It is if we were not even there. Okay. But those situations are pretty rare. You know, most often, most people, especially unless they've done some habitat improvement work, that's where habitat improvement work can really help you. You manufacture the setups you want. But if you haven't done that, coming up with a way to hunt that food in the morning, late season is pretty darn tough. We can get away with that type of stuff a lot more during the rut. Why? Simply because that buck has got breeding on his mind. Does he throw away all rules? Heck no, he does not. But he is very, very focused on breeding activity. You get to this time of year, I'm talking uh, <clears throat> talking later November, December, January. He is more than happy to take advantage of breeding opportunities. Mm-hmm. But he tends not to put anywhere near the effort into it. Because he's already been ran through, ran through the ringer and there's not that many more opportunities left. And always remember... That mature buck, this is not his first rodeo. He's done this year after year. He's had an opportunity to learn. So, hmm, where are most of the estrus dofons going to be on December 3rd, a half hour before dark? You know what? That's where I want to be too. And that happens mm-hmm. to be so that's that's generally how I see right now. I see yeah. it quite honestly as okay, we're in the tail end of the peak breeding phase. And then we get a nice little window in here where even the immature bucks are tending to do a little bit of running right after most of those does have been bred. Okay. But your mature bucks, are they running as hard? No. But now they if anything it seems like they get a little desperation to them. They want, they know that there's a couple opportunities left and gosh darn it, I'm going to score one of them. Yeah. So that's kind of more or less how I see this time of year. If that is a long enough answer yeah. to a simple question. <laughs> it was great though. Uh, my, my, you, you covered my second question, which was going to be, I was curious about your thoughts on deer behavior over that time period. And you cover that wonderfully. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. 
Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. So, that brings me, though, to the the second part, which is, okay, if, if what you're telling me is the case, which is like, hey, there are still great opportunities ahead. And there are absolutely things that we can key in on. And there are still vulnerabilities with these deer. The next question then has to be, well, okay, given all of that, you know, how should I as a hunter be taking advantage of those things? And, and I'm curious for this, for the second part of November, Steve, if you will, if you will um, humor me on this, uh-huh. I'd like to break it down week by week. Because I think November is is special, right? And there's still people that have some vacation or they can get out around the holidays or different things like that. So there's there's this rapid series of things that happen throughout the month of November. It seems like the changes are happening day by day. So for the time period from November 15th to November 22nd, like if we just look at that week, could you tell me what your approach would be during that week as we're kind of, as you mentioned, we're coming off of that lockdown or we're in that lockdown period maybe, and we've got, you know, we're ramping into the end. But what would you say you are doing November 15th to 22nd as far as, you know, trying to get a tag on a deer at that time? And then after that, then I will ask you about the week following that. Well, it's going to depend a lot on circumstances, quite honestly. It's going to depend a heck of a lot on circumstances. If 
I happen, if there's a singular buck or a couple bucks that I'm after, specifically, I'm going to be hunting them. And that means that I, between sign, between sightings, and my heavens, trail cameras have gotten to the point where, geez, these things are almost, almost too good with the cell cams. Um, yeah. One way, shape, or form, there's all this. There is a very, very old and well-known saying that you just can't pattern bucks during the rut. I'm sorry, that is pure and simple baloney. What and that the first thing you need to do though is understand what a pattern is. To me, a pattern. I, mean, I don't buy. I've heard all sorts of people go on about how they patterned this animal. I'm telling you, if they know as much as they pretend or are saying they do about that animal and everything that animal is doing, oh, they are so much better at patterning deer than I've ever been in my entire <laughs> life. And I spend a lot of time trying to pattern them. Yeah. When I'm, to me, a pattern is nothing more than knowing a minimum of one thing he tends to do during daylight. That doesn't mean he's going to do it every day. It is very, very rare that you have a buck that does the exact same things day after day after day after. What you're looking for is you're looking for a handful of tendencies. So if this buck has the tendency to be checking this doe bedding area when he's not on a doe, guess what? That is a pattern. And of course they're checking that dull bedding area. Why wouldn't they be? That's where what exactly what they're looking for is residing in during those midday hours. When it comes to the early morning, the nighttime hours, afternoon hours, you know, when these deer feed, where are the does going to be he's looking for? They're going to be on their primary food sources. Where's he going to be? He's going to be checking primary food source to primary food source to primary food source unless he happens to run into an estrus doe or gets his butt kicked by somebody who's bigger and stronger or, you mean like early season unless the farmer decides to go out and cut wood right by the buck's bedding area that day. Early season, that buck probably isn't going to be going to the same, isn't going to be doing the exact same thing that my point all sorts of things kick these deer off their patterns. But I'm telling you what, my experience is just purely, simply baloney. You sure can pattern bucks during the rut. Frankly, a whole bunch of the bucks I've killed over the years have been way more patternable during the rut than they were early season. Um, <clears throat> so, that first week, if I'm after a specific buck, I'm hunting him no different than I would have at any other time during the entire year. This is what he's doing. Where can I get into there so that I can take advantage of this without him knowing that's what I'm going to do. If I'm just plain hunting mature bucks or, or any buck, I, I don't have one or two that I'm after. You know, I'm just, hey, I'll take whatever comes through that meets whatever my criteria are for that day which I also do quite a bit when it comes to that type of stuff. I'm hunting the same during this one week we're talking about. I'm still hunting those exact same stands I was on November 4th and 5th. 
you know, those funnels between doe bedding areas, the down one side, of, <clears throat> the down one side of those bedding areas, um, that prime food source that every doe in the area is hitting at night or in the afternoons. You know, I might be set back on a, on a staging plot, just 15, 20 yards, 50 yards into the woods off of that. Um, so for the moment, if I'm just generically hunting, I'm still hunting the rut. Just like, I mean, go ahead and pick up any magazine out there and there'll be an article on the rut and it'll be a generic, this is how you hunt or that's how I'm hunting the rut. Yeah. Okay. Or now, I'm hunting Steve, that specific buck. So quick, quick uh, interjection here. Mm-hmm. What if at that time of the year, so in the 15th to the 22nd, what if you get the sense that lockdown is underway? So what if you get the sense like you're hunting downwind of doe bedding areas or you're hunting funnels and these are historically good rut spots and you are seeing nothing. It's crickets. You're seeing a few lone doe fawns or a few lone fawns and, you know, there's been no cruising bucks for the last two days and you're hearing from all your buddies like, oh man, sure seems like there's, there's gotta be some lockdown and maybe you saw one buck locked down with a doe off in the distance and everything's telling you like, man, it seems like that's happening. Is there anything unique that you do, Steve, when you think that is the case? Or is it still exactly the same game plan you just said and you're just um, waiting for them to break off? I'm grinding it out. If, okay. if you look if you look at study after study when it comes to uh when it comes to who sired who sired those fawns from that dome, um something like I don't know, fifty one percent, forty nine percent of all twins are sired by two different bucks. And then you look at radio telemetry studies on bucks during lockdown. They average spend about, now, I'm not saying the doe is only an estrus for this amount of time, but add in other bucks chasing them off, other bucks stealing the doe, all that good stuff, them not finding them right away. Averages, they're spending about eight hours with them. So that means for that eight hours, yeah, they're taking off the board but I don't know when that eight hours is. And I don't know when he's going to break loose from there. About the, there's only two ways that I know that, that I've had any success at grinding this out. And that is first, just grinding it out. The exact, he's gonna break loose. He's gonna come through here again. He still wants to breathe, you know, but it's just not as fast and furious. And as, man, this is, awesome as it is that first week in November, for example, up here. Um, The other thing, the other thing that, I mean, this is kind of getting off on a bit of a tangent, but we have this belief that bucks are leading does or does are leading bucks around by the nose all over out in the deer woods during the rut. I think that is true to an extent up until that, especially when you're talking a mature buck, up until that mature buck, okay, she's now, now she's no longer on the cusp of estrus, she's in estrus, and, and he actually has her locked down. When he locks her down, I've seen it way too dang many times to believe any differently. She is no longer telling him where to go. He is actually taking his tines and jamming them in her side when she goes the wrong way. <laughs> and he is literally forcing her where he wants her. 
And where does he want her? He wants her out in the middle of that wide open alfalfa field. He wants her up on that huge point that deer have no reason to go all the way to the top of that thing. He wants her in places that he can protect her. He doesn't want her wandering around the woods like she normally does because she is going to attract every single buck out there that smells her that is not already on a doe. Okay, so if, if, and this is a huge if, I mean, I've been able to pull it off three, four times my entire hunting life. If you know where those bucks tend to drive those does, that is a really good place to be during lockdown. But figuring out that is the whole, where that is is actually the whole key. Now, obviously, yeah. hunting the middle of that wide open field at, a, at noon, you're driving down the highway, you look out there, holy man, that's a 160-inch buck out in the middle. Oh, there's a doe <laughs> bedded by it. Now, I'll tell you what, if it's perfectly flat, good luck trying to kill that thing while he's on it. Yeah. Um, if there's some cover, maybe you can low crawl out there. What I'm actually really though specifically is those things like uh, hunting Buffalo County, Wisconsin. You've got some huge relief. And the, I can guarantee you that there are three spots, even though I haven't been, I haven't hunted the grounds I'm going to talk about right now in 10 plus years. I guarantee that I know three spots that breeding occurred this year in Buffalo yeah. County. If you can find, I mean, talking specific, within this 10-acre area right here, <laughs> does were bred. If you can find a spot like that, that is a great place to be. The problem is, is I said, good luck. I, I don't know how you scout to find where they, where they drive deer, except for through observation and scouting cameras, and also thinking of, Okay, where's the most ridiculous place a buck could be in the world right now? And that might not be a bad place to go check out. <laughs> yeah. If you see a buck in that situation, Steve, where you see a buck that's that's got a doe locked down, he's kind of pushing her around, you know, you can see the whole thing playing out. You know, like, oh, there's some satellite bucks kind of circling and, you know, maybe you see him go into a little brushy pothole or something and you, you can tell they're in there still. Do you, I know you mentioned you could try to slip in on one if there was relief or something like that, but is there ever a situation where it could actually work to call a buck off of a doe if it's close? Is there ever any kind of other aggressive move you could take or any other tactic that is worth trying at this point other than just getting as close as possible? The only thing I've ever got to work in that situation in my entire hunting life is to take my lower lip pinch it against my upper teeth and spit all over myself three times. Mm -hmm. Once in a blue moon, that'll work. But here's the problem with that. He wants that dough. He wants that dough back. I mean, go ahead and throw some dough calls at him. Okay. I have an estrus dough. So why yeah. would I leave her for another estrus. No, that doesn't make any sense. And I've never had that work once. Try grunting at him. Well, he doesn't want to go interact with that other buck 
right now, he has what he wants. So if anything, that buck grunt tends to make him want to go the, the spitting all over yourself three times fast, what that does is it challenges him. Now, he doesn't want to fight, but he may be tricked into believing that, man, I better throw down right now or this girl's gone. Mm-hmm. That said, the problem, and most pe- a lot of people I've noticed when it comes to stuff like this, tend not to talk about the problems. The problem with that as, as I said, he already has exactly what he wants. And when you do that and she goes running that other way, guess who's going to follow her? So I, I'll i tell you what, about the only, when it comes to, this is just a side tangent freebie, when it comes to hunting heavily pressured deer, whether that's public ground or, uh, or public private ground, heck, Quite honestly, a lot of outfitters' grounds are pressured way more than any public ground ever will be. Um, But in pressured situations, I'll tell you what, I barely do any calling or rattling ever. The only scenario I ever do is when I am thoroughly convinced that buck is headed that way and I'm never going to see him again. He is not coming back naturally under any circumstances. Then I'll go ahead and try doing some calling. And you know what? When he ends up heading the other way, because, I mean, it's like so much of this is just common darn sense. Calling and rattling are so... You cannot turn on a television show or a hunting show, watch a hunting channel for three hours and not see somebody doing some calling and rattling and going ahead and open mm-hmm. this big slob and pretending the only reason they killed it was because of this fancy new call or these great <laughs> rattling antlers here. Yeah, great, awesome. And I'm not saying that every time that's pure baloney, but a whole bunch of times it is. Um, the thing of it is, though, is as I said, you, you do those types of aggressive tactics on a buck that happens to already have what he wants or one that's really pressured and you might as well just jump up and down in your stand and scream as you're waving your arms hey idiot look at me don't come over here or i'll kill you yeah do you do you find steve that calling works less in the second half of the month of the month because maybe there's been more hunt, right? There's been more hunting pressure. Hunters have been trying the calls and rattling and all that for two weeks of November already. Plus deer have been kind of ran through the ringer already by the time they get to the second half of November. So is there any kind of reduction in the possibility of that working or is it just the same all month? I, I would, I'll be brutally honest with you. I have not sat there and ran the numbers on what we're talking about, but what you're saying fits what I believe. And that is, the more times a buck hears a call, here's a rat. And now I'm not saying that I'm not saying that bucks don't hear grunts out in the deer woods. They do all the dang time. Okay. I'm not pretending that just sitting there hitting a grunt is gonna scare the heck out. But the more they hear this type of stuff, it doesn't matter if you're using decoys, it doesn't matter if we're talking scent, it doesn't matter if we're talking rattling and calling, anything that is meant to attract deer, every single time. That it doesn't, or it does and it does not work out for the hunter, the odds of it working the next time just went down. 
I mean, that, that to, to me, as I said, that's just common sense. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the deeper, if you're talking pressure ground, you darn right, the deeper you get in the season, the less I'm doing any of that type of stuff. Now, on utopias, and I am exceptionally lucky to be able to hunt the utopias that I manage. On there, that, that total, we ain't in Kansas no more. <laughs> but that, that's a, that's a complete, there's really, and here's another side note. One of the best things hunters can do when going in to hunt a new situation is simply ask themselves, how much pressure does this area receive? Engage your tactics, not exclusively, but predominantly on the amount of pressure that area simply receives. If it does not, if it does not receive much pressure, I can essentially take two arrows and go like this, and odds are I might odds are not horrible that I'll rattle in a deer. Non-pressured animals are not the same as those that are run through the ring. They just aren't. And hunting both of them most every season, I no one will convince me any differently. You can get away with so ridiculously much more on stupid deer than you can on deer that are hunted hard. That, that's just plain reality. And along those lines, anybody who's listening to this stuff that's hunting pummel, pummeled ground, if you're, if you're being consistently successful, don't you dare feel inferior to any idiot like me. Period. <laughs> because you're earning any every darn bit of success you're getting. And most idiots like me, we hunt utopia exclusively. Now, I don't. But I'll tell you what, I, I just got done. I just, as we were talking before this, I just got done putting in a really super hard three hours this season on hunting one buck before I was able to kill him. And the first two <laughs> hours and 15 minutes were a throwaway hunt that I was just trying to make sure that I had everything perfect in this situation. Really, I hunted him for 45 minutes. It doesn't. I'm not pretending that on utopias it works out like that very often. It doesn't. But I'm telling you, it is a completely different world that you're seeing on TV than most people are hunting. Yeah. Okay. That is absolutely what I've seen too, Steve. We're, we're definitely tracking here. Now, that said, let's bump all this up one week further down the line. Now it's November 23rd through the 30th. Now is when... Is the game plan the same, or does something change this last week of November? Now is when I'm starting to switch more towards my late-season tactics. And as I mentioned earlier, that's morning hunting. I'm looking for the healthiest, most defined doe bedding group I can possibly find out there. I want that. There's dominance within the doe communities every bit as much as within the buck community. I want that dominant doe especially if it has that nice defined bedding area. whole bunch of, this is another one of the things that, and I'm guilty as anyone on this, talking about hunting the downwind sides of doe bedding. Well, that works great when you happen to have a cedar thicket like this, you know, that's going ahead and surrounded by mature woods, or happen to have a meadow like this that's surrounded by mature stand of pines, whatever. But a lot of times, it's just they bed in this area. When that's the case, what I'm about to describe doesn't work very effect, anywhere near as effectively. 
what I'm looking for, late season in the mornings, are the most dominant doe group I can find with the most well-defined bedding area, I, with a reasonably well-defined bedding area. I'm going to hunt the downwind sides of those in the morning, and if I'm getting good action, I'm going to sit there all dang day. I, there's, there's a handful of spots in the grounds I've managed over the years that I can bank. I mean, literally bank on some day in either that last week of November or sometime during December that every stinking mature buck and that entire area is going to show up on this camera right here that's outside of that doe bedding area. Why? Hmm. Happens to be an estrus doe fawn in there that day. And when you when you are in a stand like that in the morning, yeah, we're not talking peak rut no more. No one's doing all day sits during late season. Unless you happen to be in a situation like that. If you're there and those bucks are active in the morning, you just keep... The rule I try to use when morning hunting situations like this is the two-hour rule. I ain't going to leave unless I go at least two hours without seeing a single buck. If I go two hours without seeing a single buck after 8.30 in the morning, eh, all right, 10.30, I'm going to bail. But a lot of, when you hit it right, to just, I know I'm laboring this point, but when you hit it right, when that Dauphin happens to be an estrus. Stick it out because you are going to be in for an even more fun hunt than you've had in the peak of rut. Because <laughs> there's one, there's one Dauphin, maybe two, in this entire area that happens to be an estrus right now. Instead of 20, 30, 40 deer in this entire area that happens to be an estrus. When you're dealing one or two, they get a lot of it. Um, so I'm starting in the mornings by, if I'm morning hunting, I'm headed to the downwind side of those doe bedding areas during that last week of November, and quite frankly, almost all the way on through season. Then in the afternoons, I'm headed to the prime food sources because that's where, A, they need food now. They went through that that humongous weight drop and guess where the dolphins are going to be half hour before dark this really i i i hate to say this because in some ways it is but in so many ways this stuff ain't rocket science figure out what the heck the buck wants and put yourself there before he goes gets it hard to argue with that, that that's that would be my that is my approach the last week of november in the Midwest and points north. Okay. So there's one curveball that could possibly <laughs> interrupt this game plan you've just discussed, mm -hmm. which could be if you are hunting in a state where gun season comes in during that two-week window. If I have a gun season, like here in my home state of Michigan, my gun season opens November 15th. Yep. So I feel like that Wisconsin. dramatically changes yep. things. Ours in Wisconsin yeah. always opens the Saturday before Thanksgiving. You know, I, yeah. it, most, most gun seasons. I think Iowa is one of the pitiful few that doesn't have a gun season that messes up the rut. <laughs> yeah. But so if you I'm have that gun season same opener. thing afterwards. The exact same okay. thing. Because, well... well First off, 
hearkening back to my youth for a moment, I always believed growing up that, man, once, once firearm season's done, you, you might as well hang it up. I mean, geez, there's nothing left out there, and it's all been so pounded that it just... It, I'm not pretending that it's not easier trying to shoot a deer when you have a potential pool of 50 of them to shoot versus a potential pool of five of them to shoot. Of course it's, and I'm just throwing these numbers out for illustration purposes. Of course it's easier when there's 50 of them running around there. Well, at this point, you don't have that full stock anymore. They've been taken down hard. Studies have shown, though, and radio telemetry studies, they have flaws that they do. I, I, I do think that I can come up with all sorts of flaws in, in aspects of deer research because there's so ridiculously many variables. And the scientific equation, which is what should be used to figure this stuff out, demands that what you do is you eliminate every variable you possibly can and you test it over and over and over and over and over again and staying on this tangent for just a second what we're doing is we're dealing with predominantly anecdotal data and to me that's like staring out this much of a crack in your curtains while you're sitting on the couch yeah and you see that cat fly by outside huh i wonder what was chasing that cat And then you see this dog flying by. Oh, obviously it's the dog. Never realizing that a half mile down the road is a blazing inferno and they're all running from the fire. That's (laughs) what anecdotal, without eliminating all of those variables, that's essentially anecdotal data. We're looking through a window, like a crack in a window like this, trying to interpret this. Yes, oftentimes we're right. But a whole bunch of times we don't see that fire. And we really had we misinterpret our results so easily. But that said, I keep coming back. The telemetry studies show that what mature bucks tend to do, again, 100% tendencies, there's meaning that we're talking 50 plus one. That's it. Just one more than 50%, okay, is a tendency, okay? The tendency for mature bucks during firearms is not to go ahead abandoning the areas they know and going running over to Gertrude's place a half mile away because she doesn't allow any hunting. That buck, if if Gertrude's is not part of that buck's home range, he has no idea whatsoever what's going on over in Gertrude's. What they do is they go to where they feel safest. They lay their butts down during the daylight hours and they don't move. But what those same telemetry studies, and they don't move unless they absolutely have to. But what those same telemetry studies show is, oh, after about four days, once the orange army is gone, they pretty much go back to normal. So, I'm hunting them just like I always do.
pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I've got a question about <laughs> a question about how we survey all of this because I, I got to believe there's a lot of hunters who, you know, throughout a lot of the season, they are depending on observations or cameras to help confirm their hunches, to confirm their, 
their beliefs or about these tendencies that you're referring to. They're looking for some kind of data to make them feel just a little bit better about choosing this dough bedding area versus that dough bedding area or picking that funnel versus the other. Uh, All of this brings me to something you mentioned a while back, which is trail cameras, which are so insanely uh, useful these days. And and even like you said, maybe too useful when it comes to cell cameras. Uh, What I'm wondering is, during this time period, later November or December, are you changing how you use trail cameras at all or changing where you place them at this time of year? Is it different than where I had my cameras on November 1st? Or do you kind of put them out there at some point in the season and leave them in these standard areas the entire year, Steve? I, I, I shift them around to what I believe are the highest on spots and or the places I want until most throughout the entire season. The, the, a couple of things to keep in mind here, though, is A, so many people when they're sitting there, especially when you got a whole bunch of chips to go through, you're just sitting there wrapping away, trying to get through there. Oh, there's a buck. Okay. All right. I'll save this one. And wrapping away, trying to get through. You're ignoring so much valuable information by taking that approach. It's not even funny. Every darn, I know this sounds ridiculous and I'm not saying I'm spending a half hour. I know it's, but every darn picture you get, where's, where are they coming from? Where are they going to? What are they doing? And just simply trying to analyze those individual pictures, you end up getting so much more data than, oh, there's a buck. Yeah, there, there, there's another one. You know, um, yeah. And then also, take it a step further. These things should be helping us not hurt. To me, an unforgivable sin is when our trail cameras are actually harming our hunting efforts. That seems so pants-on-head stupid to me, it's not even funny. So, you know what? There's all sorts of places that I want intel on. And with, with cell cams, especially if you pick up a chart, uh, a solar panel with one, you, know, you can go ahead and get away with putting that cell cam in there and just leaving it. You leave it run forever and it'll keep it. Or rather than put it in there, hmm, okay, I have a beautiful staging plot right here that I want intel on and a wide open field right here. Do I really need to go back to that staging plot to get intel? No, I can go ahead and place a camera right there where they're working that, where they're working that scrape as they come out in the main field. And when they're heading from this direction, you know what? I'm pretty darn confident that they just got done visiting my staging plot before they get there. Think about how you can get intel on the locate the higher impact locations without ever going into those higher impact locations for your cam. Because unless you're using a cell cam, not only do you have to go in there to place the darn thing, now you gotta go in there every darn time you wanna swap chips too. And yeah, by putting it on that scrape rather than on that uh, on that staging plot, I'm not gonna get every single buck that goes through that staging plot. But you know what? I'm going to get enough of them on that scrape that it's going to give me enough intel to be like, oh, hmm, 
I'm getting this buck here every third day on that scrape. I bet she's actually back in that staging area even more than that. Maybe now is a really good time to go back there and hunt it. As well as the fact that who knows what other bucks are going through there as well. It's everything to me is a balancing act. And when I'm talking in this specific case, I want my impact to weigh way heavier than the intel I get. Because so darn many times you can get intel by nipping at the edges. But I can't get that buck back once I've went ahead and spooked him across the road and the neighbor shot him. I, I, there's yeah. nothing I can do about that. So that's that, that's kind of, I, I hopefully somewhere in there there's an answer. I know I rambled on about all sorts of stuff. I'm just not sure I ever really answered the question. You covered it. You covered it, Steve. So let's move then into December fully. We've talked about the edges of December a little bit. And one of the things you talked about was your approach to hunting those dominant doe bedding areas in late November and into early December. Um, Cause you might be able to catch that, you know, that little fawn that's coming into estrus. How, how long will you continue hunting mornings in December? Um, I, I thought I heard you say you would hunt mornings through the entire season, but I want to make sure I heard that right. And if not, if I want to go out and hunt a morning, I'm going to be from pretty much that last week in November on. I'm not, again, we're talking generalities. There are all sorts of individual free cases out there where, yeah, I'm going out. I mean, when a buck is telling you, kill me at this time at this location, Try to listen to him. Mm-hmm. You know, I I am very, very, very big on, especially when it comes to habitat improvement plans. Man, you go out there and you improve the habitat without having a plan. Good luck, buddy, because odds are really good that you're gonna mess up as much as you help. Now, I I need a plan. Okay, do the same thing for hunting. Whether I'm talking about a, I've got a plan for hunting season. I've got a plan for hunting property i have a plan for hunting just about each time i'm on that but i'll tell you what when there is a mature buck that's literally screaming at me hey idiot all you have to do is come over here and we'll meet each other i'm gonna i'm gonna listen to it so i i will go ahead and i will go ahead and make deviations i I will but the overwhelming majority of the time, this time of year, it's just as simple as I'm describing. And I, if I'm going to go out morning hunting, I'm hunting that doe bedding area because you know what? Are as many, I some of the seasons I hunt just barely trickle into January. Are there anywhere near as many doe fawns coming into Estrus on January third? Is there maybe on December fourth? I'd say no. But every year, a few of them pop then. I don't know if one of them is going to be popping on my ground, but if it is there, I can promise you there's no better place to be on that entire property than hunting where that dofon, that estrus dofon happens to be. But do you s- otherwise, I'm not, sorry. Otherwise, no, I, I'm the one who kind of interrupted you there. I apologize. But otherwise, uh, otherwise, I'll be honest with you. I don't do much more in hunting late season. That's about it. I will be more than happy 
during the rut in certain situations to go ahead and hunt more disruptive stands in the morning. But early season and late season for me, I, I need to be able to get in. I need to be able to hunt and I need to be able to get out. I do not yeah. want, I, I think we booger, we, us hunters, do so much more damage to our hunting than we ever realize. And I will go off on a tangent on this just for a second. Always remember, your odors can stay up in out in the woods to well over 72 hours after you're gone. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that we educate so ridiculously many deer after we leave than we ever do while we're in the deer woods. Simply from the odors that we are leaving behind. So, when I'm talking about low impact, I'm saying I need to be able to get in, preferably slipping up a creek. Now, you don't always have a situation like that, but heavens, when you do, that's a beautiful thing to do. So you slip up a creek, you jump into that stand that happens to be just off the creek bank, you hunt it with your wind blowing back over the creek, then you get back down, slip out the creek. Situation like that, you can hunt the snot out of stands. If they do not see you, if they do not hear you, if they do not smell you, perception is reality. You were not there to a whitetail. But that's the key, making sure I can get in, hunt, and get out. One of the pitifully few places that are good that time of year during morning. Now, if I happen to know this buck is feeding on this food source and he's bedded right here and I can slip in between, Oh, heck yeah. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But minus some type of very specific intel like that, no, I'm sticking to those doe bedding areas because I got those set up so I can hunt them. And I can get in, I can get out, and that's what he's looking for. So the you mentioned that most of the time you're doing the evening hunts, though, in the late season. Yes. And, and we talked earlier about how once you get into late November, that's really when a buck's mindset most of the time has shifted now to recovering from the rut, packing on that food. And then that continues, you know, and it, it increases as the month of December continues. As it gets colder, they, they got to just put on that weight again. They got to pack the energy in. So they're focusing on food. And if we're talking about making the choice of where to hunt on a particular evening, one of those things might be trying to determine what food source are the majority of deer going to key in on, on a given night. And something I've thought a lot about, and I've heard different people talk about this, is that sometimes certain conditions might impact what food source is more attractive. Do you put, is is there truth to that, Steve? And if so, can you walk me through, hey, when it's this kind of condition, focus on this kind of food. When it's this kind of condition, focus on this kind of food. Have you seen any trends like that? Generally speaking, I've found that when it's wet out, deer tend to prefer greens over greens. Not real sure. I imagine it's because it's so, geez, you're talking water-coated greens. I mean, they probably darn near dissolve in your mouth versus, I mean, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but compared to eating soggy white bread that's been soaked in water. (laughs) You know, those greens, oh man, just a little bit of moisture on them makes them taste every bit as good, if not better. Whereas that moisture on the greens tend to, as I said, I don't know if what I'm saying is true at all in this case, 
that it that they taste like that essentially is toast soaked in water that they're eating, but for whatever reason, you can and here's here's something that a person really needs to qualify all this with. And that is it doesn't matter how desperately badly that buck may want white ate, white oak acorns today. If there ain't any white oak ate good, white oak acorns around, he ain't feeding on white oak acorns. So, so often it's not, oh, geez, this is the food he wants most this day. So that's where I'll be for most hunters out there I'm talking. Um, <clears throat> most of them don't have, okay, let's see. Do I want to hunt the alfalfa? Do I want to hunt the clover? Do I want to hunt the antler king honey hole plot? Do I want to hunt the right. fall, winter, spring plot? Do I want to hunt the soybeans or do I want to hunt the corn tonight? Hmm. Most, I mean, you know as well as I do, most people don't have those level of options. It'd be nice though. <laughs> it is very nice. Um. So always keep in mind that it's not what they want worst at that time. It's really what they want worst that's available at that time. Okay. Um, yeah. General, uh, just a couple notes about food in general. Alfalfa, something that I never realized growing up because I grew up in northern Wisconsin. We have snow up there. Everybody knows alfalfa sours with those first few hard frosts. Everybody knows that. What a lot of people don't realize is it sweetens up again. And you see it. I, I uh, manage ground in Missouri and Illinois and a handful of states like that. Okay. You see it so clearly there. They're hammering it, hammering it, hammering it, hammering it, hammering it. You get those couple frosts, it's, it doesn't completely die. But keep in mind, this scenario, they have all, and they have virtually every food source that they would want in these scenarios. Um, so there they are hammering that alfalfa, and then you get those first couple frosts, and boom, that just plummets. There's still some out there, but nowhere near as much. Until about, oh, depending on the weather conditions, but two, three Four weeks later, all of a sudden that alfalfa is turned on. And if it's not every bit as hot and heavy as that, as that mowed corn, it's pretty darn close. So, hmm. so that is something that is, I'm just sharing that because, heck, I didn't realize that until about 15, 20 years ago. Um, <clears throat> yeah. But, uh, in general, when it's wet, I tend to hunt green. When it's cold and dry, I tend to hunt co- uh, grains. Then you get in this huge debate on which is better, corn or soybeans. You know which one's better? The one the deer are feeding on more that day. That's about the only conclusion <laughs> I've been able to come up with. I think in general, yeah. deer like soybeans a little bit more, and I think they're they're a better thing to plant from a cost standpoint. The deer feed heavily on the green leaves all summer long, all that type of stuff. But on a given blisterly cold day, which of the two, you tell me, it's going to be the one that most of the deer are on. 
And yeah. I've seen it waffle plenty of times. And, and I'm not talking about, I've got beans over here and I've got corn. No, I'm talking, I got beans, I got corn. They're sitting side by side and, and getting off on a little bit of a tangent for, uh, for um, management and getting gear to move the way you want them to, that type of stuff. What works out really, really good is if you can go ahead, soybeans, corn, oh, and here's some green. And you're hunting those transition zones between the two because you know what I've found? Yeah, those deer really want that fall, winter, spring cereal rye today. They want that so, and they are hammering it. And I'll tell you what, cereal rye is a glorious planting for whitetails. They are pounding the snot out of it today. They're, they're eventually going to want a little bit of green. And the overwhelming majority of those deer that are feeding in that cereal rye are going to go get some beans or some corn. Most likely both. Tomorrow, oh man, do they ever want that grain. They're just pounding the snot out of it. But they're going to want a couple bites of green too. So they're going to transition from that green to the green and from the green to the grain. It makes a nice little way to create a natural deer flow while also going ahead and providing them the diversity that they want and need. And you know what? It makes it so much easier to figure out what they want to feed on today when you got it all in one plot. Yeah. I'm right. Every yeah. I, I can see that being. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so one last question on that topic, Steve. Uh, so cold weather, we're going with grains more often than not. Wet weather, we're going with grains more often than not. Best case scenarios have all of them. What about the dreaded late season warm spell? Warm, I tend to hunt green. Okay. Yeah. I've heard that too. Um, so wanted to confirm if that's what you saw too. Okay. So moving on from that real quick. We've covered some of the food things. We've talked about, you know, what's available is the most important thing. Uh, one of the other main, oh, I, I guess, pillars throw, of late season. I, I'm just throw one more thing yeah. in there that's pretty important. And that is the most, sure. by far the most ignored food source there is, especially, especially if you just get one state down from the northern tier of states in this country. I don't know why. Woody Browse. So, I mean, so many of the people, especially in that, that Indiana, Ohio, <clears throat> Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, that latitude belt right there, their woods are, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but the woods in general in that belt are pathetic. The overwhelming majority of them grazed at one point with cattle, and they're so mature, and you get in there, even in the richest farm country there is in this world, whitetails are going to eat more natural browse than they are going to want would, if given the option, let me preface this, if given the option, whitetails, even in the richest farm country with every single crop you can possibly imagine and throw every darn fruit tree you can think of on that, and they're still, if they have it are going to eat more natural browse than they are going to the stuff you planted. You get in there with a, with a chainsaw 
And I'm not saying, please don't if you don't feel skilled with it. And if you do, follow every darn chainsaw safety rule it is. And please remember, we're talking about deer for crying out loud. It is not worth getting seriously injured or hurt over. Your loved ones would never take that trade versus the biggest buck in the world. Okay. But it's a situation you can actually often get loggers to come in. And if you do, please have a plan beforehand, all that stuff, and keep track of them daily if you can. But you can go ahead and literally jack the food on that property while putting money in your pocket. And you can have them go ahead and clear out areas for food plots if you want. You can have them make access roads for you, all sorts of things. But my only advice is first, figure out what exactly you want to achieve with this. Second, contact a forester and have a plan made up. Third, stay on top of the loggers daily. Make sure, not that they're trying to hose you, they're not. But you're trying to accomplish something very different than they're used to trying to accomplish. So stay on them, make sure you're on the same page, and that will do more. Honestly, for so many darn Midwestern properties, that and changing the way you're hunting it are the two things that can jack your success rate up through the darn roof. Wise words. You mentioned there at the end that not only the habitat, but also how you're hunting it makes a huge difference in the success that you have. And I think that, you tell me if you think this is wrong, but probably one of the biggest things that can impact success in the late season, other than having that great high quality food source, is figuring out a way to hunt these deer without them feeling pressure because they're particularly you know, attuned to pressure now after being hunted all season. Once you get to the late season, it seems like, hey, find that attractive food source and then hunt it Smart only at the right time when you can get in. Yeah, when you can get in and out without spooking them and you know, strike on those right days when it's most likely that they'll be moving. It, a lot of people like to wait for big cold fronts or snow event or something. Is there is there anything else or anything that you would like to add some more detail around when it comes to hunting these late food source type hunts the right way wind we have it's something else i grew up grew up hearing every bit as much as you can't pattern a buck during the rut man when it's windy those deer they just ain't moving they just shut right down below when when, i'll tell you what some of the best days i've ever had hunting out on stands are 20 25 plus mile an hour winds now Hmm. the big issue is you better not be sitting up in some little popple tree that's going like this whipping around in the wind because, geez, hopefully you're going to be taking a shot. And it's pretty hard to shoot when you're whipping back and forth up there. You know, it has to either be a really, really, really manly tree or a redneck on stilts or a ground blind or something like that so that you can still shoot accurately. And the other thing you need, a person really needs to do, and I don't care if you're talking crossbow, I don't care if you're talking compound, whatever. If you're going to hunt in really stiff winds, you need to practice in really stiff winds. So you know what that wind is going to do to your air or bow before you ever step out in that situation. Now, one of the big things, 
I know this is completely off topic, but one of the big things I think people, most people, one of the things that have helped me personally the most. It is awesome for getting yourself in shape and figuring out, getting yourself sighted in all that stuff, standing in the backyard at 30 yards going like this at those, uh, at those targets. That's awesome. But it has virtually nothing to do with hunting in any way, shape, or form. I can't speak for you, but I can tell you, I myself, my whole life, I've shot one deer, both feet on the ground, standing perfectly upright, <laughs> going like this. Yeah. You know, so true. It's not hunting. Hunting is twisting your body, contorting, shooting in stiff winds, shooting in a, shooting in a mist, shooting in low light. Shooting from tree stands, shooting, bouncing arrows off of the bottom of your window and ground blinds, all that. How do you not do that? You actually practice from those things before you hunt. <laughs> practice with all your equipment. Make practice as realistically realistic as you can, meaning don't sit there for 10 minutes getting that pin 100% perfectly on that delta deer target. No. Go like this, put it on, shoot. Because that's what you're going to be doing off the deer woods. Make your practice mimic hunting. Practice with every stinking thing you're going to take out in the deer woods with you at least once. And practice those less than ideal situations that we we hunt in. And finally, finally, whatever your max shooting range is, double it for practice and do a heck of a lot more practice at that distance than you ever do at what your real shooting distance is. Not because yeah. if you're, let's say it's 30 yards, you're practicing out to 60. Is this because you want to be able to shoot deer at 60 yards? For a first shot, heck no, you do not. You're going to keep your limit at 30 yards. But by practicing at 60, it makes that 30-yard shot seem so ridiculously easy. And guess what? You messed up. You accidentally shot him in the guts. Now he's standing out there at 60 yards. Shoot him again. And you can because you have been practicing out to 60 yards and now you throttle him right. at 60 and there he is laying in the field for you perfectly. <laughs> By going ahead and me personally, I, I'm willing to shoot out to 50, but only I will not shoot over 30 unless everything's perfect. I have him ranged. He is calm as can be prefer and almost always exclusively head down and eating. If he's moving at all, no, I'm not shooting over 30 yards, even if I can stop him. You know, but when everything is absolutely perfect, I'll shoot out to 50. The overwhelming majority of my practice, I mean, I practice way more at 100 yards than I ever do at 50 or less. Once, <laughs> once you get sighted in, there's really no reason to be shooting at 20 yards anymore. None. Shoot long distances you automatically know any flaws you have in your form, any flaws you have in your equipment, and never forget, every darn sport in this world is at least 50% played right up here. 
when I am drawing that bow, if I believe that animal is dead, I do not want to be that animal. If I'm drawing that bow and I have any question if I'm going to make that shot, I've learned to just let down because I know, I know the odds of that shot turning out good are pitifully few, are pitifully pathetic. Okay. Great. Your mind is the most powerful weapon you got. Use it to its fullest extent. And that is even playing games with yourself, such as there he is at 20 yards. I'm not worried about making that shot one darn bit. I make shots at 100 all the darn time. The more you can trick yourself into believing that it's going to be successful, and heck, it's not a trick. The more you practice long distances, the more you practice weird situations that you're going to encounter hunting, you know what? The higher your success odds go right along with it. And so does this. And when, at least speaking for myself, when my head is in the game and when I believe, I wouldn't want to be a deer out there. When my head ain't in the game and I don't believe, I wouldn't want to be me out there because it's going to end real poorly. (laughs) Yeah, that's great advice. And I think it's an important reminder, an especially important reminder for this time of year, because I think a lot of people take their practice pretty serious in the summer and those weeks leading up to the season and maybe even through October. But when November hits, a lot of us are in the woods a lot. And especially when you get to late season, now it's cold and snowy. And I think for a lot of folks, practice drops off dramatically during this time period. And that is a, it's a big mistake for all those things, all those reasons you just described, keeping yourself sharp, keeping yourself feeling confident. You know, that's just as important on on November 24th and December 15th, as it is October 1. And I would just throw one last thing in there that I forgot to mention. For the love of God, practice with those layers. Because the time to figure out that that's throwing your shot three inches to the right is not when you're shooting at a buck that has already got your nerves nerves flattered, uh, frazzled to the point where you're going to accidentally shoot four inches to the right already. And now you throw an extra three inches on, and now you got problems. Now you're going on a wild goose chase, and that is the least of your concerns. I'm sorry to get all preachy here, but and this is just my belief, but I believe it extremely strongly. God put us down on this earth as the number one predator. We have every right within reason to harvest whatever we will utilize. But a heck of a responsibility comes along with that too. And that means we don't waste These animals are essentially under our care. I I know that's going to sound ridiculous to some people, but I'm telling you, nobody's going to convince me any differently. When we are actually doing these types of things out in the deer woods, we are placing, there, there is a responsibility that comes along with our actions. And man, you forget about just selfishly, if this is what works for you, cling to it. If you actually do these things, your wild goose chases go way the heck down. And as yeah. I said, quite honestly, I'm sorry, we owe it to those animals. We do. To make sure that our shots are as good and ethical as they as they reasonably can be. Murphy's Law is going to apply plenty. Now, even when you yeah. do everything right every single time 
the only people that have never missed deer or never wounded deer are either liars or really, really, really bad hunters. Because they <laughs> didn't get a bunch of opportunities. You know, yeah. That stuff is going to happen when we do everything perfect. So don't sabotage it before you let that arrow fly by taking shots you shouldn't. And do yeah. those silly little practice things because they make such a difference. It's not even fun. And with that, I'll jump off my soapbox now. <laughs> well, I think that is a, that's a perfect place for us to wrap this up, Steve, because that's, that's so important. And it's such a great reminder at this time of year uh, when, when so many of us are obsessed with just getting a deer in front of us. Uh, I can I can speak from experience. Unfortunately, this year uh, it is a very very um, well. It's as bad of a feeling as you could ask for when you get that deer in front of you you've been after all year and the shot doesn't go the way you want. So uh, thank you for bringing that to the forefront again for us, Steve. And and thanks so much for for taking the time to do this. I think we've all learned a lot, and uh, I enjoyed it. I, I yeah. I I hope something worthwhile came of it. I can tell you, it's always my pleasure. Always. All right, and that is going to do it for us today. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate your support. Appreciate you listening. Keep the faith. Keep on going. There are good times still ahead. The best does not necessarily have to be behind us. So I'm wishing you all the luck of the world. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.